0: Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to bring you another great guest here on the Specialty Stories podcast. If you don't know about Specialty Stories, my goal here is to bring you specialists from every field, from every walk of life, from every point of our country, from the academic world out to the community, to rural physicians and many other places. And my goal is to really help expose you to many different fields that you may not have known about. Our guest today is a robotic esophageal and bariatric surgeon, Dr. Christopher DuCoin, talking about his specialty. We start the conversation with how Dr. DuCoin first became interested in bariatric surgery?
1: Yeah, it's uh, probably hard to put a pinpoint on that. Uh, I feel like I was fairly young. Um, no, definitely in high school, there was a group of top students who, I think there's five of us, we got to pick, um, you know, you kind of go in shadow, uh, someone in the field you're interested in. And I remember in high school, I picked the shadow a surgeon, so it's definitely interested then and then I, I think uh, gastrointestinal surgery um, I don't know it was the attraction to it for me um, but it was definitely still in medical school uh, when I really piqued my interest in, of going into general surgery and then in general surgery you kind of rotate through everything during your residency and GI surgery just you know struck a chord with me all the different pathologies and everything from cancer to you weight know, loss surgery, there's just a lot to do. So I was fascinated by it.
0: What's the typical route? Because general surgery is one of those things that it just seems like there's exponential kind of paths after general surgery. For you and for your co residents as you're going through the process of figuring out fellowships and what do you want to do next, what's the general kind of algorithm if, if that's the the best word for it to figure this out is it I I like poop I don't like poop I like upper body versus lower body like how do you go through that process
1: yeah I think it's, it's like a it's, a it's such a unique question I think for each person like how they take themselves through it usually so you know you make a decision that you want to do surgery like we'll say general surgery and there really isn't general surgery anymore it's, it's more of like We look at it as a five-year training program in everything from cardiothoracic surgery to colorectal to vascular. And I always tell people, like, we have a a very large residency program where I'm at. And I usually tell them, your first year, you just want to survive and try and do well on as many standardized tests as possible. Just don't overwhelm overwhelm yourself. Your second year, third year of your residency, you really want to dial down and look at every day as kind of like a job fair. Like, could you do this for the rest of your life? Right around your fourth year, you'll, you'll start thinking about fellowships and which fellowships you, you want to go to. You know, maybe you need to even take a year off of for research to kind of tune up your application. Uh, and then usually you'll know where you're going to go your fifth year. And It's interesting, about 80% of um, U.S. Uh, general surgery residents will now go into some sort of subspecialty uh, fellowship training. And, um, you know, you, you, you kind of just figure out as you go through the, the program what 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 your interests are. It doesn't take long. You, pros and cons, each one of them. There's different lifestyles, different pathologies. The patients are all different for each of the, you know, organ system and the surgical group. So, you know, yeah. it, it, it's different for everybody.
0: What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around bariatric surgery that you have to deal with?
1: Oh, bariatric surgery, probably in particular, that it's like dangerous, that, you know, something terrible is going to happen. Um, you know, that's a... No, it wasn't a myth. Always in the early 2000s, late uh, late 90s, uh, bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery, you know, had a decent level of morbidity to it, like sickness, illness, or you know, you get these leaks, complications, and I mean patients were really large, they're predisposed to perioperative complications, and really with the um, kind of the inception of a couple of surgical societies that really dialed down on you know, appropriate perioperative care. Uh, we, Push the envelope now. I mean, my average weight loss patient stays in the hospital for about twenty-three hours, just short of a full day. Um, You know, they can be six, seven hundred pound patients doing major GI surgery, and they go home within twenty-three hours. I think it's pretty amazing. Huh. Um, you know, I, I really think that the sleeve gastrectomy, it's pretty simple operation. It's a gastric reduction surgery. I think it's probably one of the safest elective surgeries we do in the United States, and I mean, that's all comers. That's like hysterectomy, knee surgery just because we've really scrutinized it and we, we make sure the patients are kind of prepared for the operation and make sure the surgeons know what they're doing and the, and the hospital knows what it's doing too. So you can't just willy-nilly wake up one day and say, Hey, I'm going to do a sleep gastrectomy. It's a long process. Uh, it takes at least six months uh, preoperative workup for the patients. You get there and the surgery takes about an hour and they go home in 23 hours. So you know the workup you now, pretty impressive. Wow.
0: What are some of the the traits that you think make someone to be a, a good minimally invasive surgeon, bariatric surgeon?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, that's a great, that's a fun question because uh, you know, everyone, oh, you do robotic surgery. I do my, my entire practice is robotic surgery at this point, little incision, kind of real complex surgery. You know, we do everything from, you know, weight loss procedures to esophagectomies for cancer through a couple little incisions. Um, but you yes, ask what the traits are. I think, uh, you know, people will, they love to say, uh, you know, playing computers as a kid <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And to me, it's, it's just what's the trait of a surgeon? And it's grit. At the end of the day, it's not, you have to be really smart, and not really. I'm I i do not think I'm I'm in the room with other physicians. I'm definitely not the smartest person. I don't they don't think it's smart. But you got to be able to pass your standardized tests and jump through all the hoops that are going to get you in the position to get into residency. But if you want to know what Gonna separate the people who rise to the top. It's, it's great. It's doing a little bit more than the average person or your peers. Um, you know, it's when you're tired and your body tells you to, you know, go home that you, you just need to take a nap. But you, you know, your heart's telling you you got one more patient to check on in the hospital. Are you gonna be the person who's gonna go home to take a nap? Are so you gonna go back and around on the patient, make sure everything's safe? Um, and I think that's what really separates. Uh, just surgeons in general, it's like a, it this cannot ever become like a, a job. It can't be a, you know, something that, it's a career has gotta be, you know, it's gotta be something you love so much. It's your hobby. Yeah. Um, it's gotta be just a part of who you are. You know, you know, I'd like to think I'm a, a husband and father first, but there's a part of me that definitely forever will identify as being just a surgeon, regardless of family invasive robotic or you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. Talk about the, the, those types of cases that you just love that, that, that are the hobby. So many specialists come on and they, they talk about how one of the biggest misconception is like for emergency department, like you're just going to see gunshot wounds and stab wounds all day, like every day. That's what you do. And, and not in there, there isn't enough focus on bread and butter cases to, to really help students focus in on a specialty. What's bread and butter for you as a minimally invasive surgeon, as, as a a bariatric surgeon.
1: Yeah. Right. I feel like that's kind of like, it's a little unfair because so I do work at a tertiary quantity hospital and I've kind of positioned myself where I get to, I'm lucky. I get to do some of the more complex cases that, uh, that come along in some unique um, pathologies, right? So I do, um, there's a disease process called achalasia, where the esophagus essentially doesn't function. There's a couple of really neat procedures, both robotic, uh, laparoscopic, and even endoscopic. I, I went to Germany to learn how to do this like trans-oral surgery for it. And, you know, there's bariatric cases and the esophageal cancer. And, you know, that's become the bulk of my practice. But when I started, um, was seven years ago now, I mean, I took a acute care surgery fall like everybody else. And, you know, bread and butter to me was appendectomy in the middle of the night, perforated colon, um, you know, bad gallbladder, a hernia with stuck intestines in it. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I think I do the cases I do now because I've found them extremely interesting, the pathology of the operation of patients. But when I started it, I was just operating like the grandmother cases I got just as much fulfillment. Like I I really honestly did. an appendectomy where you take it out and the patient's good the next day. Feels great.
0: Yeah. Talk about the for for a lot of students going into medicine, they love the kind of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, of being a physician. For you as a bariatric surgeon, is there a lot of diagnosis in your practice or are you mostly there to fix what is wrong?
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't say there's like a lot of diagnosis, but there's a lot of doctrine. So the, remember, we were talking before about like uh, the perioperative, how the complication rates are so low. We really, that's six months. There's a lot of medical management up front. So diabetes, hypertension, getting their sleep apnea under control. It's almost like they go through this rigorous program. So it is a little bit of, I would say, off preparation. But for bariatrics, there is, isn't that kind of like, um, you know, aha moment. I found out what's going on. You know, you you see your patient population, you know that morbid obesity is the cause of so many of their issues. I will tell you one of the, the the fun things that most students and residents and trainees, for that matter, don't get to see. So, you know, we do this long six-month preoperative workup. We do the operation. I mean, even the fellow is that's a trainer trainee a year after residency is only with me for a year. But the best part I like about bariatric surgery is six months a year after the operation they come back in, and I'm not kidding you. Their diabetes is resolved. Their hypertension's good. Their sleep apnea is different. We keep these little pictures in the electric medical, electronic medical record of, of what they look like. Almost always, a year a year visit afterwards. I don't even recognize them. You know, they've got a neck. They've got a chin. There, it's, it's a it's a neat thing to see. Yeah.
0: I, I've had a little experience uh, in bariatric surgery just through through my my internship training on the surgery floors, and and one of the things that came up I I remember was potentially some of the psychology around obesity and the the patients turning to other things to, to turn their addiction to. If they're addicted to food, they turn to, to gambling, to, to drugs, to some, some other addiction. How much of psychology is involved in what you do as a bariatric surgeon?
1: Yeah, I would I'd probably say that there is some sort of um, underlying psychosis in probably about 90% of the patients we operate on. And I'm not saying like, you know, major depressive disorder or bipolar but something. You've had some sort of medical intervention. that's why they they all have to be evaluated by a psychologist and it's not kinda like, Okay, you saw the psychologist check, you're ready to go to the operating room. It's uh they'll follow up with the psychologist, they'll work with them, um so you know, I I don't really know how many switch from this to that, but I just know that there there is a there's a psychological aspect to this, you know, the disease process. Some people it's more severe and others it's, it's, it's not. Um, And you do get your horror stories every once in a while where a patient went from overeating to overdrinking. Mm. But they're very, very rare these days.
0: Yeah. Do you, as an adult bariatric surgeon, obviously, do you, has the society looked at the ACEs, the the adverse childhood event study? Do you know about that? Uh, So it's the, the ACEs is a score for adverse childhood events. So trauma from a childhood and just the, there's, there's really strong correlation to addiction, to obesity, to lots of other things. So it'd be interesting to, to add that score into your workup for patients
1: yeah so i do do just adults um my partner does the adolescent patient population and we feel very comfortable operating down to about sixteen to 18 year olds but uh-huh. we even started going younger um kind of open the doors up on a little bit more as we realized you know there's a 14 you know 15 year old type 2 diabetics that are insulin dependent already so
0: yeah, yeah the
1: the 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 trauma behind of what gets a 14 year old to morbid obesity is, um, I think it's a real thing, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. What does a typical day or a typical week look like for you?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, especially I kind of talk to the medical students on this one. So I, um, so I, I was at my old institution, I was a clerkship director and I, you know, worked, uh, worked a lot with the residents and the medical students. Um, uh, and I get this one all the time, and I would always tell him that you know some of my good friends, uh, he's a surgeon, his, his wife is a uh, family practitioner, and uh, my wife is a nurse practitioner. And my wife and I, and he and I, were saying the same thing. We get up at the same time. We go to work you know with our wives very similar times. We all come home at the same time, especially So my wife and I. Maybe I'm a little later than her. I've got to kind of do you some know, administrative work, but. The big difference so the lifestyle isn't that bad once you get to being an attendant, once you make it to the <laughs> end of the room. Now the difference is, if you look at what it took to get through training for me, and maybe versus like a family medicine doctor or even an internist, very, very different. You know, um, in five years, you have to not just be taught how the, the entire human body works, all the pathology behind it, and then how to operate on it. I mean, it's just a lot, so. I think the real critical moment is uh, in medical school during your third year. Really paying attention to how the residents' lives are and to ensure that you can get through that to the other side. If you're just around attendings all the time, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. They come in at 738. they operate, you know, they're home by three, three thirty, four, five. That's not bad. You have to look at the residents who are coming at, you know, at four thirty to morning, staying till eight o'clock at night. Like, that's that's the tough part of training.
0: Yeah. It's uh it's like regular boot camp versus like Navy SEAL training. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The difference there. Um so talk about that training path a little bit. What does it what does it take to become a bariatric surgeon?
1: Yeah, so um and I'm gonna yeah, so it's um, the standard kinda role we were saying before, is third year medical school kind of got to make your decision what you're going to go into fourth year and you third year you apply fourth year you kind of match you start your residency residency five years in most places some are seven if you're going to go to like a very very academic heavy institute that makes you do two years for research um after residency most people do a fellowship uh and then after fellowship you you kind of um start your position now i did something a little different I did um, a year of fellowship in, uh, I'm in Florida now. I did my fellowship in California. And then I went and did actually additional training in South America and Argentina. And then I did additional training in Germany and Frankfurt. They were just doing additional procedures I wanted to kind of bring back to the United States. And then, yeah, you kind of either start a program or join a practice and take it from there.
0: What is it like to to go through this training and I'm very interested in the, the South America, Argentina, Germany kind of aspect for you to go through this training and go, how do you learn about what other people doing uh, in other countries and figure out that we're not doing it here and you want to go learn that so you can bring it back here and kind of be the, the trendsetter?
1: Yeah. So I did a lot of reading and I, you know, these things piqued my interest. There's like uh, and I, do, I do kind of two things, right? I do bariatric surgery is about half my practice and esophageal pathology, just straight esophageal related diseases together. And I got really fascinated with something called achalasia. Um, i was really fascinated with esophageal cancer. Uh, and in South America at the time, they were doing, I went to South America to learn something called an, o, an omega loop bariatric procedure, which is the way they were reconstructing their gastric bypass. And when I was reading it in this journal, I was kind of thinking to myself, this would be perfect for the robot. Like, we have a hard time. The robot at that time, you dock it and it. it couldn't move around that much. It was like the Atari and now we're up to like a much fancier version. But at the time, <laughs> it, it couldn't do too much. So I went down there and other people were doing the same thing. I'm by no means taking credit for this, but I learned this Omega technique when I came back to the United States, I could implement it. They were doing it laparoscopically in South America, but it was easy to convert it to um, robotics. And then in, in Germany, I learned how to do this transoral surgery, essentially, for a disease called achalasia. Now, if you ask me, like, so how did I find it? So I read about it, and then I went to a fellowship where I needed to do as a fellowship. And then when I talked to my mentor at my fellowship, I expressed even a higher level of learning and kind of asked him where he learned. He said, oh, this is what I did. I said, can I go? And he was like, "If you want to pay for it? So I knew, like a credit card out at the time and went and did that.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And uh, obviously... Hopefully helpful for you and your patients to have that sort of training. So it's great. I,
1: actually, I'm gonna say, yeah. So I got a. The, I really wanted to be an academic. I really wanted to be at a uh, like a hospital that was affiliated with the university. And back to that original question, you said like, you know, what what's a good trait of a surgeon? that's grit. And, and I think that 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 little bit extra and you gotta remember. I you know, I went to elementary school, middle school, high school, college, grad school, blah blah blah. It goes on on and on. And on. But that little extra time, that little time bit, that extra like year essentially I put in in South America and Germany is what set me apart from all my peers. And I think that's what landed me in my first academic job that was made me different than everybody else. So I would just kinda tell students that if an opportunity ever presents itself or it might seem like a little more work, it's gonna live with you forever on your resume CV, go for it.
0: What does call look like for you?
1: real bad answering this so <laughs> uh, we'll go back seven years ago so when I first started, it, was, it was rough I took uh when I first started I did uh, every third week I managed the ER call at uh UN medical center um you know again everything we had a gunshot dropped off on the doorstep you know it was everything that came in for for a week I would do it I'd do it from um uh what was it? it was uh, like 6 a.m to 6 p.m while I was also trying to build a bariatric and esophageal practice and then on the weekend that was the guy all weekend long so you know i think it was like 6 p.m on friday to 6 a.m on monday um and then it would get switched off to the next person but that's what i did for about three or four years that was kind of rough at that moment where i'm at now i've kind of i think i've moved along nicely so i, I really don't have to take too much call at all anymore which is which is nice and there's a point in your career where you want call you want to be busy you want your hands to move you want to operate on everything And I think you reach a point where you know you've got a large enough clinic volume of patients that you don't need to take all too much. So we have call schedules established, but for the most part, um, the in-house acute care surgeon uh, or trauma surgeon can usually handle anything. Um, Probably the only thing I still go in to help out with are esophageal corporations like for or something like that. I'll get a call and they'll ask me to come in. I'll I'll, I'll usually try and help out if I can.
0: What does it look like for Complications of your own patients—is it just dealt with by whoever's uh, staffing that day?
1: No, that's, that's different. I don't look at that as fall, That's yeah. care. So we, we all get trained, and we're still in the realm of if it's your patient, it's your patient. So yeah. your patient's not doing well on a Saturday or Sunday, you know, you're going to be there to take care of it. And that's kind of how our our whole group's set up. Um, we, we definitely look out for each other. Um, you know, if someone's going out of town and to a meeting or a wedding or whatever, and the patients are doing well. We'll all cover, but there's usually a very cordial exchange. You know, you tell your patient, doctor, so and so is going to help me out. I, I have to fly out of town for this wedding. You know, I mean, most patients are very responsive, that. but that's not the norm. The norm is, you know, if you've got a complication, you're going to come in and take care of it. Yeah. But it's like I said about the bariatric stuff, and we're very fortunate where we've evolved to. You know, there's really very few complications these so days. The heal stuff is a little different. Yeah. So it's a high, um, high risk yeah.
0: How competitive is it to match into a minimally invasive surgery and, and to become a bariatric surgeon?
1: Yeah, that's a great question also. So again, you know, I kind of just said my lifestyle is pretty good. I think I'm compensated well. I you know, I, I fit in an academic model. So the, the, the thing that has happened recently is where, you know, people used to want to do cardiothoracic and, uh, trauma and all these kind of, easy way to phrase it, poor lifestyles, surges. <laughs> <laughs> it's become very competitive because we don't, we have a very nice lifestyle. Um, you know, it's, we started talking here, oh, what time is it? around four o'clock? You know, I could have easily just gone home. Um, it's a, uh, it's a nice lifestyle, you know, uh, now I do a lot of other things. I'm always working with residents, students. Got you know, my, you know, projects going on, but, uh, for the, for the most part, I think it's become extremely competitive. I think last year had a, a match rate almost like what you'd see in plastic surgery. Um, yeah, just, and I attribute, I, I'd like to say it's like, oh, it's because we're all really fun people. <laughs> and robotic surgery is really, um, fascinating, but I, I do think, um, the lifestyle has become a much, um, bigger part of students' decisions, process.
0: For the osteopathic student, what should they do to help kind of overcome any sort of negative bias out there?
1: That's a great question. So, I, I, I really hope that there isn't too much um, anymore. There probably will be. I don't think we look at those applications. So, I sit on our resident review committee and we don't screen out or look at those applications in any other way. I would say it's, like, it's just become so competitive to get into general surgeries. What do you do, no matter what, if you're allopathic or osteopathic, what do you do to set yourself apart? One of the bigger ones, especially as the step moves to a pass-fail, what I would suggest is just research and network. Yeah. The, if you can get a couple extra lines on your CV doing some research projects, and usually, with some people, research is twofold. One, it gives you a line on your CV and, and kind of fills that up. But usually, if you're doing a research project, especially as a medical student, you're, uh, you're actually building your mentorship net- network, because whoever's doing a research project with is most likely also you are, um, your mentor. And that's the person who can make a phone call for you. The phone call is probably the most important thing. Someone who, you, you know, you go on your interviews, you really like this program in Kentucky, someone who's going to pick up the phone call, call that program director on your behalf, and, and that will be the thing that, you know, I really think sets you apart regardless of a letters after your
0: name. Yeah, talk about the that transition to to step being pass fail in terms of students really needing to network and get out there and do research for, for someone who's not in a a very strong area where, where general surgery isn't a big thing. Obviously general surgery is one of the most common things. So it should be, should be general surgeons around, but if someone's out in in a more rural setting for a medical school that doesn't have a lot of connections, what do you recommend they do?
1: Yeah. Um, So the step one going past fail, I think is going to be, so From what I gathered, it was done to decrease um, student kind of almost like anxiety, if you will, around a singular test. And my kind of counter argument to that is the anxiety of that single test, like get dissipated, but it's still going to be there. Um, If you're going into a competitive field, you're going to have to perform or outperform your peers to a certain extent. Um, so it'll just get, you know, maybe your shelf exam on your, you know, third rotation gets weighed more heavily. Maybe we'll, I mean, we're clearly going to mandate, I assume, step two, because uh, step two still isn't tax fail. So we'll want, you know, right now where you could apply with just a step one, that's what the future, You'll have to take step two and done well. Um, so those will just be different areas to look at. But if you're out in a rural community, um, and uh, let's say uh, like uh, and you're not, you don't have a ton of um, exposure to general surgeons, or you're not really hooking with anyone, you're not making a message, or there's no research group to join, or anything like that. I, when you start identifying that you want to do this, um, and maybe regardless, regardless, my wife would give me a hard time. With, like, <laughs> <regardless>. <laughs> You know, you you had this meant you, know, you had the mentors. I, I think joining, and I hope this isn't a shameless plug, but for the American College of Surgeons, there's a student section. I think it would help out these the kind of the situations quite a bit. Um, we, we do everything in the college, um, from running small mentorship programs. We call it speed dating, where you kind of meet various people and see if there's anyone to click with for mentorship. But I think the college is a great resource. I know they really, I mean, we you know. We're always looking for students, I, yeah. being a, I think it's, I think of myself as a surgical educator, I get that probably the most fulfillment out of watching, uh, you know, a student, you know, the like off in their head that they want to do surgery and yeah. uh, that they didn't do well. And that's kind of the principle behind the colleges. So we want to help the next generation. So I would say join the American College of Surgeons. Uh,
0: yeah. It's it's funny. I put up a, a social media post the other day. It was like the the levels of of kind of awareness of why you want to be a physician. And like level five, the the biggest was I just want to cut people.
1: <laughs> that,
0: to yeah, That that was my my that was my goal. I'm like I just want to cut people and put them back together as an orthopod. Um, talk about the uh, for for the future primary care physician watching this, listening to this, what should they know about what you do day in and day out or fifty percent of your time as a bariatric surgeon to help their patients um with their weight loss or help their patients maybe come see you sooner? What what do you want them to know?
1: Yeah, I would say um you know let me give it before I do that, let me give, um, a story. And I, cause I think this will kind of sum it up a little bit. So I was doing, uh, again, the bariatric surgery in New Orleans and, uh, the chief, I'm sorry, the chair of endocrinology, I was passing him one day and all um, skinny little old guy walks up to me and punches me as hard as he can on the, on the shoulder. Uh, what was that for? Do you care about diabetes? I like, or if I care about diabetes, or Sean do you care about diabetes? I was like, yeah, I, yes, yeah, I care about diabetes. I dedicated my career to diabetes, and I was like, <laughs> He goes, and he goes, I can only treat diabetes. You have the potential to cure it. So. I think if I could tell a, a primary care doctor, and this is, this is, believe me, I'm not trying to say bariatric surgery is this thing, that cures diabetes, right, you know, it will help and sometimes get great results, but I would say do your research, um, learn uh, about the outcomes. I think people get really scared that their patients are going to die, I mean, I've, been, I've never had a patient even come close to anyone near death. Um, and look what the outcomes can do when someone loses, you know, 200, 250 pounds. I and mean, they really do diabetic resolution, hypertension resolution, kidney uh, function return, you know, fatty liver disease, NASH bruise, sleep apnea goes away, osteoporosis gets bad. I mean, this, the list goes on and on. So if you saw, a, I would say, a more blue beast patient, it, it, it should just ring a bell in your head. That, that, Get at least a referral to a bariatric surgeon. Not, and it's not like I operate on every patient I see either. And the ones that are either too sick or not can't, we've got a complete medical weight loss program. We run also. so we're just we're in the. I always we're just in the business of making people better. You know? Yeah.
0: How do you walk a line? There, there seems to be um, a lot of the this body positivity movement that. That I am healthy no matter what my BMI is. How do we as physicians kind of walk that line between educating but also making sure that, that we're empathetic to patients and, and really doing what's best for them and what they want as well?
1: Yeah, I think it's like this, I might be blunt. Don't be a jerk. Don't put your head in the sand in the same capacity. Like, you, like you can't call anyone fat. Like, it's just it's not right, it's not appropriate, it's derogatory to me. There's all the other words that go along with that. Um, um, but we can't endorse sickness either. Um, and that's why I talk about putting your head in the sand. So if you've got a morbidly abuse patient with type 2 diabetes on insulin, and you, you think it's not your job as a physician to educate them on their weight, I, I'd say, take your head out of the sand, man, like, your job is to educate them that, you know, their diabetes, which is, you know, an extreme burden on our, our society, is do their obesity and help them get better. And you have to, I think that's probably, Ryan, the, the biggest, if I can make a point about um, this, talk to your patients. Don't sit there and talk about their diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, blah, 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 blah. And be scared to say, it's because you're overweight. They are not stupid, and I think that's the thing. It's like you just think that they. Oh, I'm not going to talk to them about their obesity. They know their obesity is causing this. They're begging for you to like help them. So in the and you know, I'm not saying go around and start you know, hey, everybody needs bariatric surgery, but at the same time, sick like, patients need help. Yeah.
0: What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into bariatric surgery and and minimally invasive surgery?
1: Oh man. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew known that, you know, you and I would be talking today and uh, <laughs> my career would end up where it was. I think uh, there's so many hurdles you have to go through and so many things. And, you know, I, I calculated this attrition rate once of what it takes to get, like, a college freshman to uh, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. And it's like, I mean, it's like a shot in the dark you actually make it here. And I think just if I could go back and tell myself, um, you know, keep your head down, work hard um don't get you know you'll get discouraged but um just keep pushing through and if you could if you can get that mental picture in your brain about the end result you can you can get yourself there um uh, but never be satisfied with where you're at either just keep you know keep trying to to go keep trying to push yourself forward and that's i would just kind of say tell myself it's going to be okay i wouldn't tell myself like oh there's a new robot coming out or it's going to be super fun or anything like that I'd just rather tell myself, you know, keep going. have belief in yourself, and that's probably the most important thing.
0: Talk about the, the robot aspect. So I, I, a lot of students listening to this may hear robot and go, that's really awesome, I want to play with a robot. And other students will, will say, well, I w- was really interested in bariatric surgery or minimally invasive surgery, but I'm not so sure. I'm not a, a tech person. I don't know if I'm good with my hands. How scared should the technology uh, how scared should a student be of the technology, or is that something they can learn as they go?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a learn as you go because the technology is going to keep cruising at like light speed ahead. So if there's a third year student right now who goes into the operating room and sees the, the newest robot and sits on it and thinks it's super cool and it's got 3D and you know we're operating, we're not even standing you know at the patient's bedside. By the time they're in residency, it's going to be different. Like, it's moving so fast. Um, technology's, um, improving so much that it's going to keep going. And, and the robot, it's really neat. It, it, it is. I, I'm a believer it's not just revolutionized, but it is revolutionizing surgery, what we can do, what kind of incisions, and it's only going to get better. If you're someone who's like tech adverse, then and it's, it's that uh, active, I think, like, small miracle that you and I are talking today because I was like, "How do I work this?" And then <laughs> I can do robotic surgery. Anybody can. It's, uh, now, if you're someone who's like, you know, I'm not good with my hands, um, I have a hard time tying my shoes, and I'm kind of clumsy, surgery might not be the best thing for you. I mean, you do have to have a decent amount of dexterity, understand spatial uh, visual uh, kind of setup. Um, but usually, I think most People, especially, I mean, medical students are brilliant, right? I think most people are pretty self aware of selecting themselves out if it's for a physical limitation that they can't do it. I've had to like, coach a couple students who, um, physically couldn't, couldn't do it. And those are probably the most painful conversations. But so at the end of the day, they, they know that it, it wasn't, it, it was a, it was a, it was a non practical dream that, uh, yeah, and that those are probably the hardest thoughts.
0: One of the biggest fears around the, the radiology world kind of for a long time has been outsourcing to other countries, right? You get you get a bunch of radiologists in Australia that now do all the reading because of technology and, and being able to read scans from, from afar. Do you think we'll get to a point potentially with, with bariatric surgery, the minimally invasive surgery with robots and, and latency of the internet to where someone in, in Australia can be operating in an in a OR here in Iowa? So
1: they did it once from I think the UK to New York or something like that and there was too much of a lag. It was um I forget what kind of cord they used to connect, but there was about only it was it was so interesting. It was like on the order of nanoseconds, but so it was too much the brain could compute it um it was computing too fast and the lag made it really hard. Yeah. So you know, I I think technology wise, like if we wanted to build some sort of like fiber optic cable that allowed like instantaneous like data transfer, like could it be done? Probably. Will it be done? Probably not, just because there's really no need for it. There's no one who's like that super specialized that you need your surgery in Australia in the middle of the night, daytime procedure in New York. But what I would say, and where I think the magic default is taking us is, is it not like, like telemedicine or remote surgery or anything, but I think artificial intelligence. If I had to um, put my money on a, on a stock, it would be AI. I think it's coming, I think it's coming, of course. I don't think it'll be in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime maybe, but I do think in the future that there'll be a large part of medicine and we could talk outside of surgery. So I think primary care and even emergency room are kind of under threat from AI. Um, But I think surgery will go the way of AI. And then, you know, a couple generations they'll look back at surgery as complete barbarianism that we used to cut (laughs) people open. When all you have to do is type in this genetic sequence and inject this thing in the takes care of itself so yeah. you know it's fun to speculate about the future i think i've got a career i think maybe my kids do and i think but it might I honestly think artificial intelligence is coming quickly
0: yeah definitely i i'm a I, I think we as humans we underestimate what can be done with tech but i'm a, i'm a huge tech nerd and I, I think it's it's coming it's coming strong so um e- elon's on top of that i don't know if you've seen what he's doing with his neural link but that's pretty yeah. awesome
1: no, I've seen a lot of like the ER algorithms, uh primary care algorithms, which are just yep. phenomenal. Yeah. It's kinda like you know, you're like, Oh my god, I studied that for like so long and the computer did it in seconds and uh yeah. but yeah, we'll see. Elon Musk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you like the most about being a, a minimally invasive surgeon?
1: Yeah, I, I think I like the um the I like the pace of it and I like the return on my uh my effort. So, you know, it's just gallbladder. someone's got a bad gallbladder, they're sick, maybe when they're dying, you know, I take the gallbladder out the next day, they're better. I think I really enjoy that. I do miss a little bit of the personal connection that maybe you get when you're following a patient for a very long time. I do get that with bariatrics, though. Like I said, I've been, you know, we've followed them for roughly seven years after their surgery. Wow. And, uh, but I think that's it. That's what I get the most out of it is yeah. the that you know, it's kind of probably cliche, but that I feel like I'm part of the medical treatment, right? It's like, you know, I order the antibiotic and you gave it to them and the gallbladder got better. You, you ordered the surgery and you took them in the operating room and they got better. Yeah.
0: What do you like yeah. the least?
1: Uh, probably anyone who's been doing this long, enough. like I like the, um, I like the, the, the least probably the. The paperwork, there's a lot of administrative stuff that goes along with it. And then there's like a business side to medicine and a legal side to medicine. That's pretty intense these days. I mean, it builds entire fortunes and, you know, corporations just on the, the back of uh, the medical profession. But, you yeah. know, at this point.
0: If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a, a minimally invasive surgeon?
1: In a heartbeat, Yeah.
0: What final words of wisdom do you have for someone listening to this who maybe is now interested in bariatric surgery or minimally invasive surgery?
1: I wouldn't even tell them about that. I'd say if you're in medicine, just find your hobby, find your passion. You know, like Socrates saying, like, find what you love and you'll never work a day. Like, really spend time your third year of medical school, like, really picture what you can do. Even before that, try and envision what you can uh, be. and if, if you can, if you're, I think a lot of us can be fortunate enough that if you do find that it becomes not a job anymore and it's something you genuinely love, uh, yeah, don't tell anyone I would do this for free. I, I love <laughs> that. I genuinely do. And I would wish that for everybody else.
0: All right. There you have it. Hopefully, another great guest for you another great specialty for you to explore and hopefully open your eyes to what is out there in the world. Don't forget to subscribe to Specialty Stories every week where you can get these episodes for free on your device. Just in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Make sure you subscribe for free to get every episode for free. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.